Hi, it's Brendan Greeley. Before we start, some housekeeping. Alpha Chat will be taking a summer hiatus. The occasional episode might pop up in your feed, but these will be a bit less regular than our Friday episodes. Do not despair. We will be back in one form or another this autumn. Here's the show. Earlier this year, a gunman opened fire on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Shortly before, he had posted online a white supremacist manifesto. He titled it The Great Replacement. The manifesto was a conspiracy theory about the extinction of the white population, but it was also littered with in-jokes from far-right online forums, 4chan, 8chan. He put them there to play to that audience, but also as traps to mislead the media. It was a particularly horrifying example of the last decade of online culture wars going offline. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. Angela Nagel is a writer and academic who in 2017 published a book called Kill All Normies, Online Culture Wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the Alt-Right. She tells Alphaville's Jemima Kelly how the right managed to transform itself from a stuffy, conservative brand of politics into something that seemed, to some people anyway, appealing, edgy. Here's Angela. One of the things I talked about was in the book is how these kind of new movements on the right were very youthful and took on a kind of style that was particular to the internet, so a kind of intentionally offensive sort of countercultural style which was very unusual in the sense that in the culture wars that preceded it, I may talk about, for example, the Pat Buchanan years and stuff like that, conservatives, even the relatively hard-hitting ones, tended to kind of be maybe an older age profile. They always wanted to conduct themselves in a way that was gentlemanly or something like that, or at least that was the attempt. And so this was like a very strange phenomenon at the time because it was taking the cultural politics of the right, but it was using not just an online style, but a kind of taboo-breaking kind of countercultural style that we tend to associate with the left, certainly since 68, since the late 60s. So many of the issues that they took up were kind of not very new in the sense that they had all been touched upon by previous movements of the right, but maybe because of the influence of anonymous forums in particular, things like 4chan, they tended to focus on the most taboo ones of all. So it would be like, you know, race and the Holocaust and things like that, using kind of um, uh, the most offensive language and imagery possible for the shock value. Right, yeah. And you talk in the book about how those kind of politics of transgression and the kind of the idea of like, you know, forbidden to forbid um, has kind of moved from the left kind of in the 70s. The idea of transgression was more of a leftist idea. And in the punk era, you would have people wearing swastikas on stage. And now that kind of shock tactic and the, the kind of transgressive kind of symbols have moved to the right. And so that has inspired young people and uh, movements on college campuses that have kind of never, you know, never before have we seen this kind of popularity of the right among those kind of people. But it's interesting, I think, that you talk about kind of intentionally offensive and countercultural that's the kind of ideology of the alt-right. But in some ways, conservative is, is a word that we associate with the right. But actually, the alt-right is not very conservative at all. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the difference between the alt-right and the far-right, which I think often get kind of confused. Yeah, well, one of the things you'll notice is that they hate conservatives very intensely. 
And their whole anger at conservatives is basically that they have lost, right? That they keep losing these cultural battles to the liberal left or the cultural left. And they kind of feel that conservatism is something that's so incapable of winning that it has to be destroyed. Uh, You know, it has to be just burnt to the ground before something else can take its place. But I think, you know, we often, uh, people often use the term reactionary, almost as if it's like synonymous with the right politically. But, you know, one is in a reactionary position when you've already won certain political victories and you're trying to maintain them and stop the pendulum from swinging. And so that's kind of the position that people who are on the liberal side and cultural questions are in now. I mean, they're in the reactionary position. They're trying to stop these movements of the right from kind of interfering with the the gains that they have won. And so there have been these massive cultural gains on the liberal side. So that's why the kind of transgressive stuff makes sense in a way, right? Because... Because once you start to gain cultural power, then you are in the reactionary position of having to maintain it and having to also kind of essentially guard what you have with a system of taboos. So the liberals found themselves erecting all of these kind of shibboleths and and not allowing anyone to transgress against them. And so, yeah, the, the cultural right found itself in the opposite position as being the counterculture and stuff like that. In terms of the left and how the internet changed the left, I mean, the thing is, you can be on the left and have a whole range of opinions when it comes to the economy. You know, in Britain, for example, you could probably be in the Labour Party and be anything from like a neoliberal to like a Stalinist or something, right? And you could probably be allowed in the Labour Party. People would disagree with you, right? And you could have pretty civilized arguments about it that would be rooted in some in, in, in the material world in some way. It's only on the cultural questions that you're not allowed if you budge an inch from what is acceptable today. Well, that's why in some ways the kind of the ideas of right and left have kind of slightly lost their meaning. And in some ways, would you say that the, the kind of unmooring of the left from its economic roots, you know, and its focus on, on economics is partly to blame? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's been my view. And that's a view that you tend to get in a lot of trouble for on the left because, as I say, the only things that are so controversial that you can't even really talk about them at all are cultural questions. So as a result, you know, there is this kind of internal, like, culture of ultra-puritanical kind of purging, you know, so people are constantly getting purged on the left for some misstatement on a cultural question or, or, you know, even, for example, if you say... I'm, you know, I think that the left should get back to its materialist and its economic roots and address the kind of economic questions that, you know, are of concern to the vast majority of people in their everyday life. And that should be central. People will immediately say, oh, well, you're actually saying that for this other sinister reason, (laughs) you know, uh, that, you know, you don't care about, you know, uh, uh, minority issues or issues of, you know, LGBT issues or women's issues or whatever. And so you just go around in this endless, um, totally futile uh, uh, circle with this conversation. You know, it's it's very, very hard to say anything and be taken in good faith anymore. And that, that really is a product of the online environment. Mm. Well, what's quite interesting is that the, the book is kind of ostensibly a book about the alt-right, but I kind of read it 
not as much a kind of critique of, of the left, but from a kind of leftist perspective, because you kind of identify yourself as a feminist, you identify yourself, I think, as a socialist, um, but yet you're extremely critical of the left. And I think that, that your, um, your kind of refusal to um, subscribe to the kind of tribalism of the left and your willingness to kind of criticise it has probably, you know, not not won you any um, or many fans on the left. Do you feel any pressure to um, kind of moderate anything that you're saying? I definitely feel pressure to moderate it, but I'm also very conscious of that and I try to fight that when I find that I'm editing myself. And, and then there are a lot of people on the left who say to me, like friends privately who agree with me, they say, you know, most people actually probably agree with you, but they don't want this is not the hill they want to die on, you know, right? They don't want this to take up every moment of their lives. You know, a lot of the time I feel like with the online world, you end up kind of psychoanalyzing people a lot because so much of it defies rational explanation, you know. But um, one of the things I think about is, you know, two people can say exactly the same thing, make exactly the same argument. One will be ignored, the other will explode and will result in a year-long harassment campaign against that person. It's always very hard to figure out exactly what it is. But, you know, one thing, I mean, this is a bit of a banal explanation, but I can't help but notice the pattern. There are other people on the left who make similar arguments to me, but I do notice that the ones that are a bit older uh, don't get the same obsessive, stalkerish kind of response that I do. You know, or, or even kind of people who another thing is just being offline. Like one of the reasons I'm just not on social media now is I think that once you're not on there, you kind of extract yourself from the 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 unconscious mind of these people, you know, <laughs> to some extent, because they can't actually they can't they don't feel that they can reach you, you know. Um, so there are certain things you can try to do. Like if I was talking, if I could talk to my two years ago self, you know, um, and say kind of what to do differently. One of the things I would say is just don't be on social media at all. Um, and also, if you think, oh, how come nobody's writing about this? It's such an important issue. There's probably a good reason for it, which is that for some reason, there's a taboo involved in the subject which is being protected. And if you touch it, you are going to have to be prepared for a very long period of um, people calling up your employers, uh, calling up your old university that happened to me, people misinterpret deliberately misinterpreting everything you've said all that kind of stuff so that kind of takes over your life and you have to come up with all kinds of strategies for dealing with it and not becoming obsessed with it as well that's that's kind of crazy that you've been kind of targeted in that way given that you didn't really say anything that kind of you know you just kind of document the the culture wars that's how i read it anyway rather than kind of making it any kind of extremely um controversial arguments i mean it's kind yeah of but shocking. can i say that here, here's the important point i know lots of people who had similar experiences who were very very great writers who are on the left around the same time as me who, who have just totally dropped out of public life now because they got a similar type of response. And sometimes, you know, when we would talk about it, they would say it seems like the Internet is kind of driving people insane in some way. And that is true. But I think just dismissing it as that misses an important point, which is that these are very effective tactics and that's why they exist. So, for example, um, if you respond to somebody who is maybe the first person to dip their toe in the water of criticizing some kind of left taboo or something like that and the response to that person is totally insane right let's say they get stalked or they get harassed and they get driven out of public life to the outside world that looks crazy but actually it's a very effective tactic because what it does is 
if you let one person break the taboo, then it's over, you know, then it's broken. So you can't let that happen. So you must punish the first person. Right, because otherwise it's not a taboo. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so these are actually really effective tactics. And so that is important in terms of even what the book is about, which is that when I was first looking at this, I was looking at these two sides of the, the culture wars and I was seeing just really extraordinary levels of cruelty and a total lack of embarrassment about saying things that in normal life, if you're, certainly if your name was attached to it, if you had to say it to someone's face, you would be deeply embarrassed by it, right? The regulating force of like social shame would stop you. So I was looking at these like exchanges between the right and left, let's just say for a shorthand of the culture wars and seeing the ramping up of the kind of extreme cruelty and the way in which a mob could be whipped up in seconds, you know, uh, of, of thousands of people at that time, you know, it was, it was um, and, and I was kind of thinking... Do you mean an online mob? Yeah, no, an online mob. mob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking kind of where is this going to end? If you introduce anonymity into the equation, people will no longer feel any of the socially regulating forces that exist in real life and so kind of is there any end to that I mean I'm not sure what exactly I would conclude about this now but it did kind of answer to sort of an ancient moral like conundrum among like moral philosophers of like do people have an innate sense of what is good or are they merely pressured by uh, social forces and things like that and it, it it did appear as though we kind of got our answer that like if you take away the connection between a person's voice and their reputation we'll say or their name or something like that that there's almost no limit to how much their behavior will change but i guess you could also argue that even if they were anonymous kind of in real life that actually they in in that situation they might not behave in that same way because when you're confronted with another human being you just, as a fellow human, you just do react differently to just seeing an anonymous person on the internet. And I think it's interesting, a couple of things that you've said, like you were talking about people dropping out of public life after having been trolled so horribly on the internet. And and, and you were talking about, you know, mobs being whipped up in seconds. And the reason I asked about you talking about online mobs is because in some ways, I wonder if we're like giving the internet too much power. And we're talking about dropping out of public life. What we mean is dropping out of the internet. And, and the internet isn't the whole of life you know in some ways are we giving the internet too much power and in the same way you know people who have loads of twitter followers are somehow now seen as like prominent figures just because they've got loads of twitter followers and we've got a thing on alphaville at the moment we've got a series called the entire economy is fire festival and we've just started a, um, a reddit page um with the same name um and what we're kind of saying is that there's so much fakery on the internet. There's like, you can't even trust these metrics. Like, you can't even trust people's follower numbers because, you know, people can buy followers and you don't even know about it. And and these these metrics that you're given by, like, Facebook or whatever, like, that we don't have ways of trusting them um, of, of verifying them. And we kind of look back and then we find out they're not true anyway. Um, and there's just, and it's just so hard to um, distinguish, like, uh, what's what's real from what's fake and you know and that's how they got all these people to go to this island and there was no festival you know like it was just all fake there was nothing there and I wonder if we could kind of take some of the sting and potency out of the kind of really vicious um, bits of the internet by just not valuing it so much I mean obviously that's an easier said than done but I wonder if we're just in a period of kind of overvaluing the internet and maybe if we took a step back we could uh, kind of think again about how much of our lives that we kind of live out on the internet yeah no I think that's true I think about that all the time but I'm not sure about it because I've kind of had this argument with myself for a long time because on the one hand I think that's absolutely true 
And, you know, there is a sense in which we've all kind of completely lost perspective. You know, the, a good way to test it is if you talk to somebody who's in a, an online community that you have no connection to whatsoever, and you hear them talking about it as if it's a life and death situation, and it seems so insane and ridiculous. And then you think, oh, that's what I sound like when I'm talking about the world that I'm in. And, you know, or even I often find like when I go home to visit my parents in, in rural Ireland, you know, they have absolutely no idea any of this is going on, you know, and their lives are totally untouched by it. However, people, younger people in particular, we know do spend an enormous amount of time online and therefore they are being shaped by it. And they are going to go out into the world as people who have been very shaped by it. So they are being exposed to the ideas that are going on online, the arguments that are going on online, to some extent, the behavior as well. Another thing is that if the meme of you being a hate figure gets out there, right, and that starts to take this unstoppable momentum that things online tend to do. And now, I don't see myself as that, by the way. I mean, you know, but there are examples like John Ronson wrote this great book about online shaming. And actually, in a way, he was really ahead of his time because it got so much worse after he wrote that book. But, you know, if you're one of these people who becomes a totem for something that a particularly enthusiastic, I suppose, group of people online really hate, that will spiral into real life. So just for example, the Daily Beast published a piece just about a week ago, which, as if I understand correctly, was they doxed, as in they exposed the name and personal details of a man who was just a regular citizen, he was a day laborer, who had posted a meme that was mean to Nancy Pelosi. And they wrote an article about this guy and they looked into his background and said that he had a criminal background. And they so his name. So forever, when you Google his name, that will come up, you know, and if you go for a job interview, if you go on a date, if you do anything, that's what's going to happen. So it does, you know, they do have this control over how you're viewed uh, that can have, you know, very damaging effects. But I guess the other thing, too, is that it's kind of funny that in a way, the appeal of the Internet and the appeal of social media was that it offered us this kind of narcissistic pleasure whereby we could almost brand manage ourselves, you know, so you could create, like, take a really nice photo of yourself, present your best, the best version of yourself to the world through these kind of social media platforms and in a way be a better version of yourself. And that appealed to all of us on that level. We all did kind of get sucked into it. But the other side of that is that while the Internet can give you this um, persona that you would like, and that you maybe don't quite live up to in real life, it can also take it away and present a horrifying version of who you are. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, talking about kind of things going offline, for example, I think the most recent um, kind of horrifying incarnation of the kind of 4chan, 8chan meme um, shock tactics culture was the Christchurch massacre of the mosque. Um, and so the, the shooter posted a um, kind of manifesto before he did it. Um, and in it, he put all sorts of kind of in-jokes for the kind of people who would be on these forums. One of the things that he talked about was um, having got rich with this Bitcoin company. Actually, um, as uh, Bitcoin blogger David Gerard has pointed out, it's probably complete nonsense because actually he was talking about this company called BitConnect, um, which set itself up in 2016. And according to um, ABC, the shooter had actually been traveling because he'd used the, um, the proceeds from this cryptocurrency thing to, to go traveling. It looks like it was just 
that was just trolling. And but yet the media had kind of picked up on it and and had kind of said, oh look, you know, here's a neo-Nazi who's like into Bitcoin and like because there'd been this idea that neo-Nazis were into Bitcoin, and so he was just kind of in some ways exposing um, the gullibility of the press. Um, I mean, how much of a role does the press have to play actually in all of this in the culture wars, and how much is that should the press be to blame, and how? Has the press been too kind of both uncritical, but also like too ready to kind of jump on the exact same bandwagons that have kind of caused potentially some of these problems? When a shooting happens like that, there is a rush to politicize it as much as possible in a kind of in a simplistic way and so on. I mean, they've been doing that with those kind of lone gunman shooters for a long time. But I guess it's hard to know because on the one hand, you don't want to say they're overreacting, right? Because the act is so horrifying that if you say that, it sounds like you're kind of downplaying the, the act itself. But I just don't know that, that that it's really helping. There's a huge anti-media feeling out there now. And I think that the when people are talking about the media in that way, in this very angry way, I think the media that they're mainly really talking about is this kind of middle tier that opened up with, again, as very much as a product of the online world and social media, which is kind of between the old fashioned newspapers and I guess the, the Internet itself or or things that are considered not legitimate media. Right. So I'm thinking of things like the Huffington Post and maybe Vice, BuzzFeed, things like that things that were designed to adapt to the online world. Those are the media platforms that tend to really fixate on cultural politics and on the alt-right. Like, for example, I remember seeing... I've been quite quiet, actually, about all these subjects for, for a while. I've I've hardly written or, or said anything in the last six months or so, in part because I felt that we may have reached a point where it's kind of not really possible to talk about certain kind of culture war topics without getting sucked into... Um, the culture war. <laughs> yeah, the culture war itself, basically, right? Because that's how I started off writing about it. I was trying to be objective, but then people get angry at you because they say if you're being objective, it means that you're secretly sympathetic with one side or the but other. But that's so sad that you that, that like we, we so desperately need, in my opinion, people who call out all of this kind of identity politics um, and culture wars. And I mean, and that we chastise people who dare to like say that, you know, to step outside of the boundaries of those those tribes. It's obviously a really dangerous thing if we can't if we can't have critics. Yeah. And the thing is, people are angry. The anti-media thing, like people are angry because they see that that kind of middle tier of the media that I'm talking about, which is itself a product of the internet, you know, and it's trying to feed social media back what it thinks it wants. That's interesting because I've always imagined, I mean, when I hear people talking about the media in that kind of critical way, um, I tend to think of, and I, and I think it's normally, the criticism is normally coming from the right and they're talking about the liberal media. And so I tend to think of the kind of old school media. So, um, and I wouldn't actually <laughs> include the, the Financial Times in this because I think that we're um, we're less associated with the kind of right or left. But for example, the New York Times, I think, has been criticised for um, its, its coverage of Trump and its kind of failure to properly engage with and, and, and its failure to kind of be completely fair always to, to Trump and to kind of jump on things that he says that and I mean it's and the New York Times is one example then we've got you know the, over here we've got the Guardian and um, I always think of um, the critiques of of the kind of liberal media being more about those kind of papers than the kind of online middle of the what did you call it kind of mid-tier media yeah well um, 
That's true because they associate the New York Times and the, uh, and maybe the BBC in Britain that might be the equivalent with this kind of elite. But I think if you actually look at the articles that that really get them angry, they usually do come from more that kind of online magazine form type of thing, from what I can see. Well, I guess that's partly with the New York Times anyway. That would partly be because they wouldn't have a subscription to it if they're really yeah, critical. Yeah, yeah. But but isn't it interesting though that the Financial Times, a writer I know called Amber Ali Frost, wrote this piece about the Financial Times and how even though she's like on the radical left on economic questions, she she only wants to read the Financial Times because. It's this kind of oasis of calm in <laughs> in all of this, you know. And the fact that a lot of it is paywalls is, is part of that. To me, what that kind of suggests is that by not being as fully online, as fully accessible online as other publications, it has saved itself from... I, I don't think that you can enter into that world. In the short term, it gets you massive attention. Everyone's talking about whatever you've said. But in the long term, the consequences are very bad. You know, it's like if you stare too long into the abyss, <laughs> uh, it does start to affect you. I would like to counter that argument by saying that FT Alphaville is free and we do not have a paywall. <laughs> and all you need to do is to register, which in some ways is a little bit of a kind of barrier to um, kind of massive kind of online pr- proliferation. But, but we very much, um, I think it's part of our... Um, mentality to not kind of go along with the kind of group thing and we we, we very much question um, both the left and the right um, and so I just wanted to give a shout out to the free FT Alphaville given that's who I wrote for <laughs> and I just, just to say that it's not always the case. And the equivalent of that in terms of what I'm talking about in the book is that a lot of the characters in the book became hugely famous overnight online with no kind of usual uh, channels, right? So they just had social media accounts and became celebrities with often bigger uh, audiences than entire newspapers. So a figure like Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, he's someone who, you know, clearly enjoys fame, right? (laughs) I think he, I don't think he would even dispute that. So he becomes this huge celebrity uh, overnight and totally self-made in a way, right? Like he didn't have like an institution around him or anything like that. I mean, Breitbart to some extent, but he did make his own career. He kind of rode the momentum of the online culture wars, like that unstoppable momentum of that period to fame. But then, of course, his whole career came crashing down overnight. He had a huge book deal. He got dropped by Breitbart. He got a few really uh, effective kind of big hit pieces written about him. And his career was just disappeared overnight. Yeah, which is fascinating, given that he was propped up by this alt-right, which which is kind of, as you describe it, kind of all about breaking taboos and as we've talked about you know transgression and 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 shock tactics and his downfall came in i think it was early 2017 he but he'd made the comments i think in 2016 um defending um catholic uh, priests for raping underage boys and this was suddenly a a taboo that was unacceptable even to the alt right and i mean obviously in, if we think of the alt right as being a kind of socially conservative uh group which i think is not what you argue then that would make sense but if if we think of the alt-right as having no coherent kind of ideology, then this becomes kind of interesting that it does have some taboos. Do you think that, like, what are those taboos? And um, how would you define the alt-right? And is it still a useful definition um, in 2019? I think that at the time that I was writing that, you could say there was a broadly new right or something like that. Like there was a new right emerging online that was very much a product of the online world that was a different set of people, a much younger set of people who in many cases didn't even come from the conservative movement or anything like that. And they were all kind of thrown in together 
they were all talking to each other as well at the time. They were all going on each other's shows and they were all sharing the same memes and things like that. Well, since then, like say in the two years since the book came out, I would say all the different groups have, there's a much more clear line of demarcation between each one along ideological lines. So I would say that the people that I described as alt-light in there... Alt-light, can you just explain for listeners, like, who who would you describe as alt-light? So alt-light was obviously, you know, meant to be a kind of pejorative, suggesting that they're like the alt-right, but a watered-down version in some way. And I guess those were people who didn't want their political views to be about race, even though they wanted to break certain taboos about language in that area. They insisted that it was actually... they, They had kind of almost neocon politics, really, and although the style was different and so on. Uh, so that would be maybe Lauren Southern. I think she started off as a YouTube kind of e-celebrity and then went on to make documentaries. Gavin McInnes, the former editor of Vice magazine, Milo, people like that. Th- those would be the alt-light figures. And what about Trump himself? What, what category would you put him into? Oh, well, initially Trump was a kind of nationalist, like a civic nationalist, an economic nationalist, something like that. But he was also a taboo breaker on the cultural stuff. So this coalition, which now no longer really exists, but briefly all joined forces behind Trump, they liked the fact that he was breaking taboos around kind of feminism and political correctness and things like that. And they got a kick out of that. And and also, at the time, they saw him as a... the, the alt-right in the stricter sense, the alt-right and the alt-light actually do have very significant ideological differences. And what, what are those? How would you... Well, as I say, the, the alt-light have this kind of neocon, so, something like a neocon politics. So they tend to be, for example, Milo, for example, would say something, you know, hateful towards Muslims in the West, but he would do it through the language of, you know, gay rights or something like that. And he would also be very, I think, still very uncritical of U.S. foreign policy and stuff like that. Whereas the alt-right proper are very anti-war and, you know, America first and all that foreign policy wise. They want it to be nationalist and they would describe themselves as identitarian in a way, or they don't reject identity politics. So the alt-light people, what they say is that they want to they want to be about universal values and things like that. They would do something like, say, we're against gender quotas because we think everyone should be treated the same, that kind of thing. Whereas the alt-right would say, well, women are genetically not as good at certain things. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So like, that's the difference, basically, between the two. Obviously, Facebook got a huge amount of criticism for their role in kind of spreading like so-called fake news in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election through their kind of the, the way that their algorithms worked and 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 the kind of the promotion you know that the adverts that were allowed to be run on there etc but and they now have to kind of appease the left again um, by banning all these far-right figures now that as you say that a lot of the figures who you wrote about have kind of disappeared from the internet but I mean how how dangerous is that and I mean I know that a lot of the people who've been purged from these platforms have now uh, migrated to Telegram which I think is the same journey that ISIS took and I mean is that creating a more dangerous world in which people are even more you know isolated from everyone else and therefore that their views are going to become more radicalised in these echo chambers? Or does that in some ways protect us all from the proliferation of this kind of stuff? Like, is the purging of these people a worrying development or is it a kind of taking away of the power that they had or is it kind of a, a mixture of both? I think it will be in the short term, it will seem very effective 
but in the long term it will not be effective because you have to look at what are the contradictions that made this movement this set of movements like appear in the first place and none of those have really been resolved none of the questions that they had that brought them to that point have been answered because even discussing any taboo issue is simply impossible and there is i mean i think that it is true that there is a very profound and a very deep corruption of the universities of the public space in all kinds of ways the places where we are supposed to be able to discuss difficult issues that that is gone and they're trying to just stamp this down into the ground instead of dealing with it in any way and so i just think the human spirit rebels against not being allowed to talk about very important things you know that it almost feels futile to talk about anything that's important now because it's it's like a minefield all the time. Well, that's quite a bleak note to to finish on. Um, but I think uh, I think that's where we are. And I mean, is there any hope? I don't think there has to be. But um, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope in the culture wars? Is there any hope that there could be any room for having a more kind of robust scrutiny of the dominant liberal contradictory agenda? I think we have to first realize how bad this is going to get if something doesn't change. You know, it's getting to a point where, as I say, almost nothing of any consequence can be discussed in any meaningful way. I mean, I even find myself speaking in these incredibly vague terms because if I utter one sentence that can be taken by somebody and put out there in tweet form, (laughs) you know, that they can pull out of context, they can absolutely ruin your life. And so we cannot possibly have any meaningful conversation about anything when this continues. And so we are going to have to find a way. Clearly, the majority of people don't want this, right? The majority of people, I mean, bullied makes it sound kind of childish, but they don't want to be part of public conversations. They're totally checked out of them because they just think this very niche culture war issue is not a good cause for me to ruin my life right and be become some kind of hate figure so the thing is that's not going to get better until it is addressed i used to be of the view that the left should not be concerned with the culture wars that it should not be concerned with identity politics and that it should stick to the bread and butter issues that concern everyday people and the purely material stuff i now think that things have gotten so bad that there simply is no way out but through if you know what i mean so this just has to be tackled in some way, which means a lot of people are just going to have to take hits for the higher value of the truth, that the truth actually matters and that you have to take the consequences that if saying something truthful means that you're going to be totally misinterpreted, interpreted in bad faith, they're going to try to do something terrible to you. I think we all just have to take that for a while until this gets reformed in some way because the alternative is is kind of horrifying you know which is like totally uh, oppressive environment that I really just think can't go on forever and I do think ultimately if it does go on right and there's no there's no reform option if you like right nobody's willing to say anything about it who is ultimately going to benefit that but those on the far right who are able to say you know, we are going to offer you a solution where you don't have to obey any taboos. You can say anything you want, you know, and and we are just going to smash these people who have done this to the, the public sphere in a way. That is obviously going to be an attractive option when all other options have been closed off. 
I think what you just described is the same problem for the media, actually. Like the idea of the truth not actually being the most important thing is, I think, a big problem. And I mean, um, you know, there might be a variety between like the left and the right in the way that they'll present it, but there'll be kind of uniformity within those groups, which I think is really worrying. But to come back to a little bit of hope, potentially, maybe, I mean, obviously, we can't go back. We have the internet now and, and it's not going to go away. But maybe it's just about realizing that like the things that are said on the internet are not the be all and end all. Although, obviously, as you say, you know, there's a record on there um, and we all kind of are stuck to that. I do see a lot more talk of people being aware of mental health impacts of spending an enormous amount of time online. I don't have the hand but I remember I think it was Jonathan Hyde gave these like very very shocking figures on depression and even suicide among young girls being linked to a lot of online activity. It comes up a lot more in conversation, I notice, that people are saying, I've stopped using, you know, some social media platform, so much happier, I get so much more done, it's great, you know, and they get kind of back in tune with reality in some way. So, I mean, that may even out in some way, that may start to happen. And then as a result, all the dynamics that briefly came to totally swallow up the media and and the public space may have less impact. Okay, well, I'm going to leave it there in case we go down another dark and depressing hole. Let's leave it on some <laughs> some light, not that we always have to. So thank you very much, Angela Nagel. Thanks for having me. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. For my part, it has been a privilege for all of us at Alphaville and the Rhodes Center to talk to really smart people on Alpha Chat this year. More soon. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 